Thank you for that special, Miss Denise. We appreciate that. <coughs> and uh, tell you what, you got to have a lot of air to sing all these songs, and that's been uh, that's been a challenge to me since since the first of the year when we had COVID. Ever since then, I've, I just get winded easy, even still. And so, uh, appreciate y'all uh, bearing with all that. But it's great, isn't it, to hear the great songs and the precious hymns of the faith, and just be encouraged by those words. Thank you for being here today, and uh, we trust that the Lord will speak to our hearts through His Word. If you have your Bibles, let's open the Word of God to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. What a great chapter in God's Word, a familiar passage, and a lot of good things here. John chapter 3, just 36 verses, but this is an action-packed chapter. There's so much, so much here. And uh, we could just spend all day. We won't do that, but, but we could. <laughs> Amen. It's all good. When you found your place, let's stand together. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I'd like to pray before we do. And then after our prayer, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Father, how we love you today and how we thank you once again for your word. And we do pray now as we read the scriptures, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you'd be our teacher and guide that you would bless us with your presence, Lord, and that you would guide our thoughts, that you would show us what you'd have us do. Teach us from your word today. Make it personal. Make it plain, Lord, so that we might know your will and know the things you'd have us do next. And we do thank you in advance, Lord, for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Verse number one, the Bible says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Well, I could have read the rest of their dialogue. It would have taken us through most of the chapter. So I chose to spare you a little bit. That catches the highlight of it. And I like this passage because here we have a religious leader coming to the Lord Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus has come from God, something the Pharisees would not do openly. But Nicodemus, we might say, was a believer in Christ. Now, he's not yet saved, as we would use the term, but he does acknowledge the Lord Jesus, and he does acknowledge that he's from God. And so he's a step ahead of his comrades in in the Pharisaical clan, and he's asking some sincere questions. And he comes to the Lord Jesus with this. They have a little dialogue where the Lord explains some things to Nicodemus. 
And uh, then we're going to see some other things here in the chapter as well. And when you put all this together, what I see in chapter 3 here in the, war, in the book of John is what I'm going to call a commentary on the Christian life. A commentary on the Christian life. And that's the thought I want to share with you this morning. That would be the title of the message if you're taking notes. And uh, we'll look at some things here that the Lord unpacked or unfolded for Nicodemus. Did you notice that he comes asking questions? He comes seeking. He's looking for answers. He's, he's trying to understand. Did you notice how Jesus cut right to the chase? And he said to him in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that just gets right down to the brass tacks, doesn't it? You know, in this life, we can do many good things, but, the, but at the bottom line, at the end of the day, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never been born again, then you're not going to make it to heaven. And that's what it's all about. If we go through this life and fail to learn that, then we've really missed it all, haven't we? So the Lord talks about the Christian life here. And we find that the Christian life is all about, number one right here, it's all about salvation. That's where it starts. So without salvation, you're really not a Christian. Just because you attend church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just like going to the hospital doesn't make you a doctor. And going to the garage doesn't make you a mechanic. So therefore, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You have to not just attend, but you have to believe. You also have to receive. And this is what Nicodemus is about to learn. Receiving Christ, that's what salvation is. It's a relationship, not just a religion. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all the religions of the world. Because if you, if you just had a bowl on this side and you put all the religions of the world in it, you could, you could contrast that with this bowl over here and Christianity in it. And what would that look like? All the religions of the world have this in common, that they're all telling you, in order to be saved, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. The world religions all say, do. But when you come over to Christianity and you see Christ on the cross, he says, done. What a difference. Because when we receive Christ, we receive what is done. The payment that is made, there's nothing left for us to do. Oh, hallelujah. Because if we were trying to do it, we'd never get there. And have you noticed? All the people over here on this side, that's how they all answer you. And if you ever go to one of them very sincere and say, Hey, look, I, I want to make sure I'm going to heaven. I know you know how to get there, so I'm going to ask you. What do I got to do to be sure? I mean, absolutely sure I'm going. What do I got to do? They'll get their list out, all the do's. And after they name three or four of them, say, okay, 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 I think I got it. And repeat them back, whatever they say. Give them their three or four. Okay, now that's it. If I do that, I'm surely going to heaven. And when you really pin them in the corner like that, guess what? They're always going to add a thing or two. Well, you got to. <laughs> You know why? Because they're never quite sure that they've done enough. You know why that is? Because salvation is about being done. It's not about do. Right? Jesus is introducing that to Nicodemus, and he says it's not about all the religious works. He said in verse 3, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. 
So what is salvation anyway? Jesus introduces this thought to Nicodemus. Salvation is a new birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And without being born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Much less go there. So Nicodemus asks a natural question. This is human logic at its best. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? No, 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 no. Not that kind of birth, Nicodemus. Notice Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto thee. He's answering the question. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A lot of people try to spiritualize this verse. Now look, I get it. Sometimes we spiritualize things in the Bible for a devotional thought. No harm in that, but don't build a doctrine off of it. And a lot of people try to spiritualize verse 5, and they say, well, that's spiritualizing that term water, and, and from that they interpret it to mean you have to be baptized, born of water, that is not at all what he's talking about. Now, a good rule of thumb for every Bible student is this. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. And I love the Word of God. Look, God knew. He made us. He knows how we think. And so when, when the Scriptures bring about questions, if you'll keep reading a little bit, God usually gives the answer. And he does here. Because verse 5 would make us ask the question, what is water birth? Right? What is that water birth? Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 6 explains verse 5. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, because he did ask the question, can a, can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, hey, no, no, no. There is a physical birth that's born of water. Okay, if you want to study biology a little bit, the baby's surrounded in water. Okay, that is the physical birth. And then he says, then a man must be born of spirit. Water, flesh, physical birth, and then birth of the spirit, born again, spiritual birth. And Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, hey, Nick, this is what you're missing. You've been physically born. How many of y'all have been physically born? <laughs> right? You wouldn't be here. But he says now what you're missing is this spiritual birth. You've got to be born again. Now notice what he said in verse 6, that which is born of what? Spirit. But notice it's capital S. That's God's spirit. That which is born of the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God. That is spirit. All right? So a man has a body and a soul, right? What about his spirit? His spirit comes when he's born again. That's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus here. That which is born of the spirit, God's spirit, then is spirit. We don't even have spiritual life until we're born again. That's why the Bible says, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's why the Bible says that spiritual things are foolishness 
to the carnal mind. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. That's why people who are not saved have a hard time understanding spiritual things. Because it doesn't make sense in their logical mind, and they don't have the spirit to interpret. So they don't get it. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Salvation is a new birth, being born from above, from the spirit of God. That is not something that man can generate or replicate. Right? It's not education, information, reformation. None of that's what man needs. Man needs transformation. And that comes from the Spirit of God. And the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's transformation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Salvation is a new birth. He explains that by giving the example of the wind. And he says, you know, you, you can see the wind, you can see the effects of the, excuse me, you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind itself. So you don't know where it comes and where it goes, right? But you believe in the wind because you see what it does. You feel it. That's the way the Spirit of God is. You can sense him, you can know him, you can see the effects of the Spirit of God, but you can't see his Spirit, right? He's talking about a spiritual birth. So in verse 7 he says, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Don't be alarmed at that saying. Don't be surprised. Don't let that shock you. You must be born again. My home pastor called that the one must for the unjust. You must be born again. But salvation is not only a new birth. Salvation is a new belief. It's a new belief. You know what man believes left to himself? The same thing Adam and Eve believed in the garden. You know, God told them about sin, and then they sinned. Right? And, and the sin wasn't the fruit. The sin was disobedience. And that's really what all sin is. All sin is transgression, going beyond. We go beyond the boundaries that God set for us. That's sin. Sin is when we disobey God, period. That's it. When you disobey God, that's sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And what happened? As soon as they sinned, what did they do? They did what the serpent told them. When you do this, you're going to be as gods. To what? To know good and evil. All of a sudden, they knew evil. And how did they know it? They knew it through shame and guilt. They'd never experienced that before. But the presence of guilt and shame troubled them so deeply that they couldn't sit still. So they went to cover that with what? You remember? They sewed fig leaves, the Bible says. They made themselves aprons and coverings. They were trying to hide their guilt and shame. That's what sin gives you. That's where it takes you. And all of us, if we, if we didn't have the revelation of God's word, all of us would do the same thing. And that's why all the religions of the world can be lumped into this one bowl, except Christianity, because they're all doing stuff just like Adam and Eve. They're trying to cover their guilt, cover their shame. And so what, what, what makes them feel better? Doing good. 
So they try to do enough good works, and here's how they say it. Do enough good works to outweigh the bad ones. So look, if you ever read the Bible all the way through, then just go ahead and show me where in the Bible does God weigh good works and bad works? Nowhere. There's no works scale in heaven where God outweighs. No, the Bible says he's going to try your works. He's going to examine. That really is for the believer, not the unbeliever. But the Bible does talk about God examining the works of the unbeliever. It's in the book of Revelation. And it says that he's going to use their works because the Bible says it's all recorded according to their works. Because people are going to think they're good, so they're going to get to heaven and God's going to show them their works. And the Bible says when that happens in in Romans 3.19, when that happens, it says all the world, it says their mouths will become stopped. That's what we call speechless. In that moment, you're going to hear a pin drop. That's when, that's when they're going to realize, maybe for the first time, that they're not good enough. Can't ever be good enough. You know why? Because good works don't erase bad ones. And that's why that whole scale thing doesn't work. Because good works do not erase bad works. To get into heaven, there's only one qualification. You have to be perfect. Well, none of us happen to meet meet that qualification. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for our imperfections. And then the Bible says what he does is he, when we come to Christ and acknowledge our sinfulness and ask for his salvation, he makes a trade with us and he takes our imperfections and he gives us his perfection. He takes our unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness so that when we stand before the Father, we appear righteous. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus trades with us. He gets the worst end of the deal. We get the best end of the deal. We come out looking like the Son of God. All because of what he did. And you can only get that deal when you understand how wretchedly sinful you are, how hopeless it is to try to be good enough to get to heaven. When you understand that, that will motivate you to come to the cross and ask Christ to save you. And when he does, then you'll be free from the tyranny of trying to do enough good to make it. It's a new belief. Salvation is when you stop believing that you can be good enough and you start believing that Jesus is the only Savior. Notice what the Bible says. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, if you remember the Old Testament story, this is when the snakes got loose in the Israeli camp. Remember that? They were biting them and they were dying. And God said to Moses, Make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. Right? And he, and he, and he stood that pole up in the camp and he told everybody, Look, this is what God said. 
If you get bit by a serpent, come and look on the pole, and if you look, you will live. That's where we get that song from. Look and live, my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live, right? We get it from that story. That was God's plan of salvation. God's not interested in your plan. God's interested in seeing if you will follow his plan. Will you put your faith in his plan? That's what God wants to know. Hey, do you know what? Those people in those days, the ones that got bit and they came and looked on the pole, they were healed. They didn't die. But the ones who didn't believe, the ones who said, oh, there ain't no science in that. Hey, man, you can't just look on a pole and be healed from a venomous snake bite. That's not going to work. The carnal mind, remember? He receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. And so his natural logic would not allow him to put his faith in the plan of God. So he didn't come, and he didn't look. Those died. Remember that? So in verse 14, Jesus says, just like that story in the Old Testament, he says, okay, as Moses lifted up the serpent, he said, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He was talking about on the cross. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross. Why? Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. Saved from the punishment, the wrath of God for sin. And how are we saved? Through us? No. Through goodness, through good acts, through good deeds? No. Through him. That the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, because he's contaminated with sin, and he does not come in faith to receive the cure. Just like those who were already infected with venom. They did not come to the serpent that, that Moses erected. They did not put their faith in God's plan. They died in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Because the Bible says, if your deeds are good, look at verse 20. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Motive. Those verses tell us that motive has a lot to do with whether a person believes or not. Those who struggle with faith itself have a deeper problem. It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the motive. When they cannot let go of self and they cannot let go of their goodness and their deeds and what they think, they can't figure it out, it doesn't make sense, they don't come to trust God and his plan wholly. Sad, isn't it? But the truth is, in order to be saved, you have to have a new belief. You have to let go of this idea that you can ever be good enough to make it. 
And you have to cling to the idea that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He alone is good enough. And the only way you make it to heaven is to have him. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Salvation is all in Jesus. It's about who Christ is. And we have to come to a new belief about who Christ is. More than a prophet, more than a good teacher, he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Without him which we would all surely fail. You also have to come to a new belief about who you are. Who you are. Not a good person. Not somebody who's working on it. Not hope so, maybe so. We have to understand who we are. Desperately wicked. Where all our righteousnesses piled together would be filthy rags in the sight of God. A new belief about who we are. When we understand how God sees us in our unrighteousness, then we will come to Christ and trust his. Amen? Salvation is very plain. Jesus introduces that to Nicodemus because even though he was religious, he was not saved. It's possible for somebody to go to a church, even a good Baptist church, hear the Bible preached and still not be saved. Why? Because they don't have the new belief about who Jesus is and who they are. They've never come to terms with the idea that no matter how good you think you are, you'll never be good enough to make it in the sight of God because he is righteous and we are not. We need salvation or Jesus would not have come and died on an old rugged cross 2,000 years ago. But not only does Jesus talk about salvation in this chapter and John writes about salvation as plain as he makes it I love this chapter because it's so clear and it defines terms. It clears the way for distractions that people bring up about you have to be baptized to be saved and all that stuff. God's word has explanation for all that. But this chapter also deals with Christian service. Look at verse 22. The Christian life is about salvation. It's also about service. Because now that we are saved, we serve the Lord Christ. We don't serve in order to be saved. We serve because we are saved. We don't serve to earn salvation. We we serve out of gratitude that he has given us salvation. Like John said, we love him because he first loved us. So the Bible says in verse 22, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Now, why did they baptize here? Here, the Bible's clarifying something else. Because there was much water there. That refers to the mode of baptism. We baptize in deep water. We baptize by submersion. Because we are picturing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You see, baptism is like, um, well, we who are familiar with sports, we we understand association. What do I do? I, I wear the jersey of my team so that when I'm on the field, everybody knows whose team I'm on. And if I get loose, I can get the ball, right? Somebody may pass it, or I may receive a pass. 
The thing is, baptism is like that. It's like putting on God's jersey, identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, letting the world know whose team you're on. We don't get baptized in order to be saved. We get baptized because we are saved. We tell people, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've accepted him as my personal savior. We step forward then to be baptized. Baptism is the biblical profession of faith. You ever heard that term, profession of faith? We think a profession of faith is when somebody comes down and, and the preacher announces, hey, everybody, Joe got saved, right? Liz got saved. That's their profession of faith. No, the profession of faith in Bible days and, and in, in scriptural reference is when a person goes through the baptistry to identify with Christ. That is the true profession of faith. And here we're talking about baptism. Being baptized and baptizing others. Uh, this is not part of salvation. Like Peter said in 1 Peter 3.21, some people say, well, baptism is part of salvation. That's how you wash away your sins. And I'm going, whoa, wait, wait, where did you get that? What verse says baptism washes away sins? Do you know it's very hard to show people where something isn't in the Bible? <laughs> I can't show you where it isn't because it isn't. But 1 Peter 3.21 is. And it says about baptism, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away any sins. Keep reading. But it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism, then, is the first act of obedience for the new believer. It is the first step we take to identify, to wear the jersey, remember? To identify ourselves as Christians, as believers in Christ. So we put on the jersey through baptism. It is an act of service. It is not an act of salvation. People say, well, that's a work. Look, a work is something you do in order to be saved. The Bible says that we're not saved by works. No works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If I could get to heaven by how good I was, well, what do you think I would do when I get there? I'd say, I'd say, Brother Junior, let me tell you what I did to get here. Right? You heard about the three guys up in heaven? And they were bragging about what they did to get there. And one told his deeds, and the other one told his deeds. And the third guy spoke up and said, oh, yeah? He said, I defended an old lady from a, from a, from a uh, biker gang. And they said, really? When did you do that? He said, about three minutes ago. <laughs> That's how he got to heaven. He, he died defending them. Never mind. Anyway, well, listen, <laughs> we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't earn salvation, but after we're saved... We start working for the Lord because we love him, because we want to serve him. We want to identify with him. And so the first step, the first service that we do is baptism. Why do we serve anyway? There's three reasons why we serve the Lord. Number one, we serve when there is a command. Baptism is commanded. Did you know that? Acts 10, 
10.48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Baptism is a command. It's part of the Great Commission where, where Jesus told the disciples to go and teach all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So, so baptism is commanded. It's one of the first things that a believer should do. There's other things that are expected of a believer. They're commands. And that's one of the reasons why we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord because it's commanded. You know, you know it's commanded that believers, all of us, should be a witness for the Lord. We may not be the best witness, but we should be a witness. Right? We may not bring the most people to the Lord, but we should be witnessing so that some, through our testimony, can be reached. So a command is the reason why we serve. Number two, there's another reason why we serve, because of a call. Sometimes God gives a person a specific call to do something. If you're commanded, you should serve. If you're called, you should serve. Right? Not everybody's called to do the same thing. We should serve and fulfill our calling. Number three, there's a third time that you can serve. And guess what? This isn't as strict, this isn't as rigid as a command or a call. You can have something else that allows you to serve. It's called opportunity. Sometimes you have the privilege of serving because it's just an opportunity right in front of you. It may be an opportunity that you have that I don't have. For example, did you know that you're going you're gonna to have influence over some people that I won't have, even as a pastor, or even your pastor. For some reason, we have it in our minds, you know, like God does miraculous things through pastors, and sometimes he does. And so we think, boy, if anybody's going to get saved, well, let's, hey, the pastor needs to go witness to them. That's really not true. Because there are some people that will listen to your testimony when they won't listen to mine. And they may have some reason why they turn pastors off on the radio and in person. But they would listen to you. You could say things about God that they will listen to and you'd get away with it, whereas I couldn't with them. Isn't that interesting? It's because of influence. You know, the, the truth is we, we choose, don't we? We choose who we allow to influence us. And some people we allow, and some people we don't. Right? They may have influence over others, but when it comes to us, we say, no, I don't listen to that. We choose. Guess what? Some people are going to choose you. They're going to listen to you. God has put you in their life to be that influence, to be that witness. Guess what he's done? He's given you opportunity. Opportunity to reach them. And so don't be afraid of that. Serve when you have a call, a command, or an opportunity to serve. But that's not all. The Christian life is about salvation. It's about service. And lastly, the Christian life is about surrender. This is a little bit sad, the way it's presented to us. But it's a beautiful picture of what surrender looks like. In verse 25, we have concerning John the Baptist, 
It says there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, they're talking about Jesus, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. Hey, they're not coming to you, John. They're, they're going to Jesus now. What do you got to say about that? In verse 27, And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He wasn't in the spirit of competition at all with Jesus. He said, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And you know what? That's exactly the attitude we ought to have with one another. That's the attitude we ought to have with other churches. Hey, if they get to do something that we don't get to do for God, hooray for them. Man, let's cheer them on, right? If they're, hey, if they're, the church across town is packed out to the gills with people hanging out the window, hey, glory to God. Hooray for them, right? We don't have to one-up them. We don't have to get a live band and, you know, see how, what can we do to get everybody over here? We don't need to compete with all that. You know what we need to do? We just need to serve God and be faithful. And God's going to send right here who he wants over here at Beckwith. 1 Corinthians 12. God assembles all of the members of the body in particular. God knows the function of each member. And God puts within the, the church those that are needed so that the body can function. Hey, we need to let God do his work. And by the way, we need to cooperate with that and be part of that work. Amen? John wasn't competing with Christ at all. Notice what he said in verse 30, though. He said of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you know that's what every believer has to learn? In the Christian life, we have to learn that it's all about Him and less about me. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we learn of Christ, the closer we become to Christ, the more it is about him and the less it is about me. It's all about Jesus. Isn't that right? Hey, you know what? Without Jesus, I don't really have nothing helpful to say to y'all. Isn't it interesting in Mark three fourteen when Jesus called the disciples? The Bible says he called them to be with him and then to send them forth to preach. Isn't it interesting that God put it in that order? Hey, because you know what? Until you've been with Jesus, you ain't got nothing to preach. The only thing worthwhile you have is what God gave you. That's why Paul talked about we take the comfort whereby we have been comforted of God, and we take that and we comfort others. That's what ministry is. It's when we share what God gave us, we share it with others. And that's what I'm doing. I'm sharing this message. Hey, you know, this thing I'm calling a sermon right here, these thoughts, guess what? God gave them to me first. And if you ever think, boy, the pastor's stepping on my toes. Hey, man, whose toes you think God stepped on first? <laughs> right? God gave this to me. 
I must have needed it worse than you did. But isn't it good when it comes from God? And it doesn't matter who's sharing it. When it comes from God, it's always good. Surrender. Surrender in your life means doing His will and not your will. Now, the unique thing about a Christ, being, a, being a believer and being a Christian is this. The more intimate you become with Christ, the closer you become, the more your will begins to line up with His. And that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's a great day, isn't it? When what you want agrees with what God wants. That's the ideal Christian life. That, that's where we're trying to be. But when your will goes the opposite direction of his will, ah, then which one do you choose? John said, we must choose his. When my way and God's way go the opposite way, he said, uh, I'm, I'm learning to choose his way. He must increase and I must decrease. That's growing in the Christian life. Surrender means listening to the Spirit of God. Write this down quickly, Romans 8.14. You can look these up later. Surrendering means listening to the Spirit of God, Romans 8.14, but it also means, number two, surrender means walking in the Spirit. That's challenging. You have to be able to listen before you can walk. Because he has to give you directions. Galatians 5.16 is the verse for that. Surrender means walking in the Spirit. It means living out what you've learned as a believer. Walking in the Spirit means doing things God's way. You ever heard that expression, what would Jesus do? Well, the reason that became popular is because people want to walk in the Spirit. They want to live like a Christian. They want to do those things that someone who's saved ought to do. Walking in the Spirit. How do you know if you're doing that? When you're walking in the Spirit, you're doing what God would do. You're doing what the Bible says He wants you to do. The things that are coming out of your life line up with what the Bible talks about as the fruit of the Spirit. All right? So we're walking in the Spirit. Surrender means listening to the Spirit. It means walking in the Spirit. And number three... This is a hard one. Surrender means crucifying the flesh. Crucifying the flesh. Now, when you accept Christ, remember, born again, guess what? You already have a body. You have the flesh. That carnal nature is in you. It came from Adam and Eve back in the garden. We were born with that. But when you get born again, you, get, you also now get a spirit. Now you have a body. You have that carnal nature, but you also have a spirit. And now you have a struggle. Romans chapter 7, Paul talked about that struggle. You know, sometimes I don't really, sometimes I do things I know I shouldn't do, and I, and I don't do things I know I should. If Paul had that struggle, then you and I know we're going to have it. What is that? It's the struggle between the flesh and spirit. The way to win that is not only to walk in the spirit, but it's also to crucify the flesh. Years ago, an old black preacher said it like this. He said, inside every one of us, he said, there's a, there's a black dog and there's a white dog. And he said, and, and they're fighting. 
And somebody said, well, man, preacher, which, which one's going to win? And he said, whichever one you feed the most. Wow. Hey, that's why we talk about coming to church regularly. That's why we talk about reading your Bible every day. That's why we talk about coming to the altar and making decisions for God. That's why we talk about being a witness and listening to the Spirit and trying to do what's right. Because there's a battle going on. And if you want to live the victorious Christian life, then you better let the white dog win. You better make sure you, you yield to the Spirit and crucify the flesh. Starve the flesh and feed the Spirit. That's what you got to do. And I'm going to tell you, that's hard. Because it involves self. This thing right here. You know, one of the hardest things in the world to do is look in the mirror and say, no. You can say no to anything and everything else, but saying no to yourself is hard. The verse for that is Galatians 5.24. We have to crucify the flesh. How do we do that? The Bible says we do it through the affections and lusts. We have to get a hold of those. We have to be in control of those. Our affections and lusts. The Bible says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. When your affection is misplaced, then you will walk in the flesh and you will lose the battle. You will not represent Christ well when the black dog wins. We have to crucify the flesh. This is all included in the Christian life. It starts with salvation. We move into service, and then we, we deal with that thing that we don't really talk about much, surrender. When we surrender to God, that's what, look, by the way, surrender starts at salvation, doesn't it? You have to, you have to put up the white flag. Okay, Lord, I'm going to quit trying to save myself by doing a bunch of good things, and I'm going to believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save me from my sin. The white flag goes up. That's where surrender starts. But the more we journey with Christ, the bigger surrender ought to get to the point that we, just like John the Baptist, say, he must increase and I must decrease. Hey, it's all about him. Isn't that good? Let's pray together. Father, how we love you this morning and how we ask you to help us on our journey in the Christian life. Not only to know you as Savior, but to serve you and then to represent you well through surrender. By being willing to choose you over us, your way above our way. By being willing to crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Lord, we need your help to do that. It's difficult on a good day. And so we pray for your guidance and your blessing, your power and your help. Help us live for you, represent you well in this world because this world needs to see Jesus more than it ever has. So Lord, we ask you to use us and help us, we pray in Christ's name.